It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an hour of honor in an unconscionable world. <laughs> I'm Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 900, matter of fact, closing in on 1,000, post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. Well, you know, I thought you'd be at a thousand by now. My you, goodness, I, I you know better I've get been to going work. slow. I mean, I seem to be bringing them up, but boy, oh boy, huh? Wowzy, wow, wow. Well, you know what? Good job, anyway, darling. Well, thank you so you much. You work so hard, and I'm so proud of you. And but who are you calling me, darling? <laughs> what right do just you some, have? Just some to lady call me who walked in. And saw you were doing a show, so I thought I'd join. Well, welcome. But my name is Amy Alton. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife, and I am also known as Nurse Amy. And also known as the hostess with the mostest, we (laughs) are the gang of two, and we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with an antagonistic aunt? Our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provided patient relationship exists or is implied between the host and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't listen to a thing we say, but you know what? (laughs) You just might be the highest medical resource left in a disaster or any setting where the ambulance is just not around the corner. So show the world that you've got more sense than a slice of bologna by (laughs) learning what to do for injuries and illnesses in good times or bad. And while you're at it, get some supplies and a medical kit to go along with that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical stuff in tough times. And they're designed indeed by a 
advanced registered nurse practitioner, yes. and AMD, or an actual medical doctor. Compare them for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff, or talk to anyone who's ever had one, who's ever gotten one from us, Yep. and you'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Hey, do you have a nugget of knowledge in that noggin of yours? <laughs> well, we learn as much from you as you do from us, so connect with us. It's so easy, and here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We also have a couple of Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom and Doctor, spelled out, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. Why did we do that? That was That confusing. was our first one. Oh, was it really? Oh, no way. That was the first one. That was the one that Facebook took away from us and said it was a public figure or something oh, like that brother, instead of just being our personal account. Public figure. It was the only one we had at the time. Yeah. Silly, silly, silly. All right. What and, can I say? And, and what else? And follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. We also have a YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. And uh, I think that about wraps it up. My goodness gracious, we are busy, busy people. Hey, you know, many of our listeners and readers are surprised to find that we devote entire chapters of our Survival Medicine Handbook to the treatment of dental problems. Huh. The medical handbook, what's it doing talking about <laughs> dental stuff? Well, you know what? That is something that is very important. You know, we also have dental kits. Our visitors to our store are also surprised to see that we have dental supplies not only in some of our medical kits but we have actual separate dental kits right so why is it important for the survival medic to be dentally prepared as well as medically prepared i'll tell you why because it sounds darn scary to have a tooth problem and a lot of pain when you don't have a dentist to go see that is or a so neighbor true. who's a dentist or a husband who's a dentist <laughs> that sounds really scary that's absolutely true you know the effects of dental disease can be very severe at the very least impacts negatively on work efficiency and survival situations and if you've ever gone to work with a toothache you know what i'm talking about it's probably fair to say you weren't at 100 percent efficiency and that's where you need your people to be if you're off the grid long term now a standard first aid kit that'll usually suffice for most short-term disasters but when you're talking about a long-term survival setting you need a more varied set of supplies. And dental issues probably won't be a concern, I'll admit, if the power's out for a few days. But if you're off the grid for a few months or longer, though, dental care is going to become an important part of your role as survival medic. You have to just decide whether you believe that there could be a long-term event. If there is a long-term exactly. event, then you need to have a dental kit. You need to have dental supplies and some dental knowledge. So there are many dental problems. But today we're going to talk about a potentially life-threatening one, tooth abscesses. Now, a tooth abscess is a collection of pus that's caused by a bacterial infection. Pus is comprised of uh, dead and live bacteria, white blood cells, debris. It's a sort of a, a, a it is the battleground where your body is fighting the bacteria, and there are a lot of casualties. Usually has a foul odor. You probably have almost everybody is. Right. It sounds like a civil war. Yeah, it is indeed. It sort <laughs> is a lot of casualties. Of That's right. Well, it's more like an invasion, I would say. Oh, uh, yeah, so yes, sort you're of right. Like, that sort makes like sense. It. Well, anyhow, the uh, a, a, 
tooth abscess. Most of these abscesses are related to tooth decay, as you can imagine, but in areas where you're off the grid and things there could be hostile environments, you know, poor hygiene, dental trauma, the lack of ability to uh, brush your teeth regularly can cause gingivitis or gum infections. And of course, there's problems related to previous dental work that goes bad over the course of time. Abscesses occur in different areas, either at the tip of the root. When I say the tip, I'm actually sort of talking about the base on the lower and the tip on the upper. So in other words, the deepest part of the root of the tooth, that's called a periapical abscess, a periapical abscess, or it could be in the gum next to a tooth, uh, usually near the root also, but not directly involving the root, just sort of collateral, the root becomes collateral damage. And that kind of abscess is called a periodontal abscess. So these are slightly different. We're going to talk about how to tell the difference between one and the other. I would say that periapical abscess are the more common ones, but what happens is if, if these things get far enough along without being treated, both of these wind up occurring together sometimes. Now, an abscess first forms when bacteria enter, enters through a, or bacteria enter. You know, bacteria is the plural form, and bacterium is the singular form. Isn't that funny? That's I bet right. nobody so, knows that. Right. Because who discusses one bacteria? Yeah, right. You know why? Because those things are part of a gang, and yeah. they roam around together. <laughs> They're never, armada, never apart. Yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> and so when I say when when bacteria enter through a defect, that's, that is actually the correct way of saying it because it's plural. Yeah. So anyhow, an abscess forms when bacteria enter through a defect in the enamel. That's the tooth's armor, the part that, of the tooth that you can see when you make a big smile. And <laughs> usually there'll be a little chip in the tooth or some defect in the tooth, a cavity, for example. That's commonly where it begins. Now, the bacteria, once they get into the tooth, then they start spreading into the pulp, the deep part of the uh, tooth, and then all the way down to the root. And that damages the things that are in this sort of little highway that you have in your tooth. And the nerve and the blood vessels are what winds up getting inflamed and, and damaged. And of course, when you have damage to a nerve, it can cause pain. It could be caused quite severe pain, as a matter of fact. Uh, once the nerve actually dies, the pain in the tooth might cease, but unfortunately, with an abscess, you have painful swelling, inflammation, accumulation of pus all over at the base of the root and causes crazy pressure that causes pain in, in the nearby gums and the soft tissue, even the bony socket. So if you left it on all this untreated, the bacteria may enter the bloodstream and that can cause a life-threatening infection called septicemia, and that is bad news. Sometimes you can get an infection in the jaw called osteomyelitis as well. Both of those are really, really bad infections that can be life-threatening. Now, it's important for the medic to be able to recognize an abscess when it forms. Now, when it forms, it's commonly seen as a swelling in the tissue at the base of the tooth. It might have a pimple-like head. Some people notice that it has like a little white head. Other signs and symptoms would include things like a severe throbbing toothache, obviously, that would be probably the most common sign, and that sometimes spreads to the jaw, or it actually goes to the ear. Some people notice an earache. Of course, sensitivity 
to the tooth. Now that may occur to cold, but it also can occur to hot. If it occurs to hot, it probably is a sign that the damage to the tooth is irreversible. Uh, sensitivity when biting down on food or gnashing your teeth together, that pressure is pushing down on the abscess and causing increased pressure, therefore more pain. If you have a periodontal abscess, you'll have very terrible, terribly red and swollen gums usually. Uh, you might have a fever if it gets into your bloodstream. That would be bad news. Uh, your face may swell as the soft tissue gets, uh, and the jaw gets infected. You can have, and, and that even goes further. It goes down to your neck, the lymph nodes in your neck and under your jaw. Uh, and if it pops, of course, you're going to have very, very foul-smelling breath. You might have foul-smelling breath anyhow. <laughs> well, that doesn't weather. sound good. That, it, it, it's a bad thing to have, and some people... Well, if you think about it, you got some nasty infection. I mean, even if you have something on your... Any other part of your body, if it gets infected enough, you can smell it. Oh, yeah. You know, if someone had gangrene on their on a toe, you would smell it. Right. Most bo you know, boils, for example, that have pus in them, they'll Oh, they'll when smell they drain? When you, when you drain them, oh, many times they'll smell. Yeah. So it's just uh, a lot of bacteria bringing there. Bringing me back to the hospital <laughs> when I was working there. there I remember. Oh. I, I remember operating on people with... Uh, abscesses in their pelvis and boy it can be boy some of that was such a mess caused so much scarring and damage and, and just the whole belly was full of pus and i remember all you want to do is just irrigate and irrigate and flush and flush and flush you try to flush it out but it's as not as much as you can you, gallons and gallons and the of thing fluid. is since you can't see bacteria you don't even know if you have it all i mean that is the thing well, folks. The truth it, is you never have it all and and that is the truth and and It'll look clean, and you'll say, wow, I really cleaned this out really well. You, you can't sterilize skin because skin is alive. You just can't get rid of everything. Right. That's why bac uh, bacteria and a bacterial infection should be treated with antibiotics. And we'll talk mm -hmm. a little bit about the antibiotics you use to treat tooth abscesses Absolutely. Uh, in just a few minutes. Without modern diagnostic testing, as in survival situations, mm -hmm. it's going to be difficult to tell the difference between a periapical abscess and a periodontal abscess. Another one, the one that goes through the tooth and, and accumulates at the base of it, or a one that is in the gums and forms a, a swelling and pus collection in the gums, not necessarily involving the tooth. Is there now, anything you can think of to help us to remember one and the other? Yes, absolutely. Is a little... Oh, uh, a little yes. saying or a little hint. Well, the ape, apical, it means the apex. So if you think of the tip of the tooth or the base of the tooth, that would be considered the apex. There you go. And so that is how you could, how you could do a periodontal. Of course, an endodontist obvious, uh, works in the gums. And so that's the kind of dentist that you would go to for a root canal, for example, and goes through the tooth and then the gums. I think just listening to that probably helps us separate it because I know you're going to be referring to these words when you continue. But this, it's funny this because I'm going to tell you how to tell the difference. But the funny thing is that it matters more in modern dentistry than it will in survival. Yes, let's that's true. Let me tell you how to tell the difference. Okay. Okay. So. In periodontal abscesses, gum-related abscesses, the swelling usually comes before the pain. However, in an abscess in the tooth itself, in which the accumulation is right at the base or the apex of the tooth, 
the pain comes before the swelling. So periapical abscess pain comes before swelling. Periodontal abscess swelling comes before the pain. Now that makes sense because if you have even a piece of popcorn kernel stuck between your teeth mm -hmm. and it's moving your teeth, you have irritation, you feel it, you feel something's not right. So if you think about some pus building up underneath the tooth and kind of pushing the tooth up, you're going to feel that right. Some pretty people, much right away. Right. Some people notice the tooth becoming a little loose. It, it maybe feel a little higher than it used to be uh -huh. and affects your bite sometimes. Right. So it's, uh, it's interesting the way that happens, but uh, that's because of the uh, large accumulation of pus deep inside. So periapical abscess, pain comes before swelling. The gum abscess or periodontal abscess, the swelling comes before the pain. Now, tapping on the tooth may also give you a hint. A periapical abscess, one in which the tooth is affected primarily and not necessarily the gum so much, if you tap vertically on the tooth, on the top of it, Up and, down. and you elicit pain, it's probably that kind of abscess, periapical abscess. Mm -hmm. If you tap on laterally on the gums and it's, get, it's painful, well, it makes sense that it would probably be a, a gum or a periodontal abscess. Now, if the tooth has no obvious crack or, or decay, mm -hmm. it's probably periodontal. It's probably a gum issue because the tooth looks normal. Right. However, if, if there's an obvious cavity in the tooth or if the tooth is very sensitive to hot and cold, it's probably a periapical abscess where the infection... Which is, which is bad. Right, where, <laughs> which, where the infection is all throughout the inside pulp of the tooth. Yuck. And as I mentioned, the differences between the types of abscesses do matter in, in modern dentistry. An abscess, mainly in the gum, for example, might have a relatively healthy tooth nearby that could be saved maybe via root canal surgery, other procedures. In survival, however, this kind of stuff is sort of too advanced. It's really not an option. So extraction of the tooth to eliminate the pain and infection is pretty much going to be the end result. I mean, in my opinion, extraction is the answer to the majority of dental emergencies and grid down scenarios is just the way it used to be when uh, a couple hundred years ago or less or yes even. <laughs> even, that's true yeah in i would say in the 1950s 1960s that was the common commonest way a lot to of, deal with the dental issue is yeah, to extract the tooth there's a lot of older folks that aren't aren't too terribly old at least the older I get, they don't seem that old. <laughs> Isn't that funny how that happens? That is. The older we yes. get, the less old the older folks seem. But um, you're so young. But they've got yeah, but they've got a lot of teeth pulled, and it it's not that. Um, they might necessarily have had things that couldn't be repaired. It's just they weren't repairing them back then. No, they were just extracting. They're the just tooth. like, oh, okay, well, you got Out uh, you, go. <laughs> you got uh, one of these 20 problems wrong with this tooth, mm -hmm. and solution A, B, C through Z is extraction. <laughs> so <laughs> which one would you like to have? Yes. Extraction can, now, well, extraction, extraction in five later, minutes, right? yeah. extraction tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> There you go. There are a whole lot of choices. <laughs> now, after you extract the tooth, especially if it's a periapical abscess where the infection was in the tooth, just underneath it, the drainage is usually going to occur via the, the socket, via the now empty socket, and it's going to come out that way. But sometimes you actually have to do an incision with a sterile scalpel, especially um, 
far down to drain the entirety of the abscess. And that procedure is called incision drainage or I and D. And so an incision drainage is sometimes, it's commonly necessary in periodontal abscesses, I would say, less so maybe in periapical abscesses, but sometimes it is necessary. And so you should have a, a sterile number 11 or number 15 scalpel as part of your medical or dental supplies uh, to allow you to do that. And of course, you will always want to flush the water. You want to be have, uh, flush the area with warm salt water. You want to be able to make a salt water gargle. So uh, that's useful. Or maybe hydrogen peroxide. That is also useful. And flushing it out to drain as much of this pus out as possible, all the, the gook out as possible. Uh, that's called irrigation. And it's very, very helpful. So that's important. You want to give them pain meds and whatever pain meds you might have mm -hmm. on you and you want to apply some warm moist compresses especially to the face if there's swelling uh, before or after the extraction well although extraction and drainage and irrigation may be what you need to do some it's probably prudent and it might be all you need to do but mm -hmm. it's prudent to begin a course in my opinion of antibiotics especially for those people with fevers or facial swelling i totally agree that, Absolutely. Because you never know where if you've gotten all of it, so that's the important thing. Uh, options would include uh, penicillin. Uh, the veterinary equivalent for that is fish pen, amoxicillin, fish mox, clindamycin, fish sin, and metronidazole, fish zole. And, of course, the treatment would last about five to seven days. Uh, penicillin would usually be about 500 uh, milligrams uh, four times a day for a week. That would be good. Uh, clindamycin, I think, is 300 milligrams uh, uh, twice or three times a day. No, I would say three times a day um, for five to seven days. Metronidazole would be 750, 500 to 750, uh, twice a day for five to seven days. And what else was it? Uh, fish mocks, I think, is also there. There you have 500 milligrams. That, and that's three times a day for the fish mocks. By the way, you can find all of this information in a number of articles on our website at doomandbloom.net. I hope you go to www.doomandbloom.net and uh, subscribe. You can get our articles as they come out. That's one thing that is, I think, very helpful. And uh, we have a search engine, so you just look up uh, clindamycin or, or amoxicillin, and you'll find a bunch of articles, I'm sure, about each of these various medicines, how to use them wisely. They are not candy. You want to use them wisely. Exactly. And uh, so we talk about dosages and what they treat and all that kind of stuff. So it's obvious that medical preparedness for long-term events involves having dental supplies and some knowledge of the dental anatomy and how to treat some common dental issues. If you really believe that there's some kind of major event coming that's going to be more than a few days without power, you really need to have a good dental kit. And don't forget to check out Nurse Amy's dental kit. Uh, we, we really believe that there is nothing like it on the market. And Thank you. If you are serious I am curr about currently, being medically prepared, you yes, got to be dentally prepared. I'm currently uh, adding, or, um, excuse me, ordering fresh supplies because I keep everything nice and fresh. Good. Nothing sits on the shelf. I will tell you, folks, when you place an order... We custom build that kit in the color you choose. If you have an option for a tourniquet, 
We put the tourniquet you want. It is hand-built and shipped off to you. Fresh. Exactly. And made and assembled in the USA. In South Florida, actually. <laughs> if you, you want to be specific about it. <laughs> Nothing is shipped over to us pre-made. There you go. You know, one of the things that is a, a major obstacle for the survival medic to deal with the issue of wound closure. So we want to talk a little bit about that. You know I talk a lot about that. And when you should do it, when you shouldn't do it, how to deal with open wounds. Well, a major problem is the lack of an easily available and stockpileable form of anesthesia. Pugh. We have had so many issues about that. Oh, yeah. How many thousands of questions do you think we have answered about, about that? Prob- every single Probably a thousand. <laughs> every, easily a thousand. Easily. Every single time we go to a show, hundreds of questions... Uh, written to us. Yeah, that's Facebook always one questions. of questions. Yeah, when of we do interviews, that's uh-huh. always a question. A radio yep. or um, like webinar questions. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. And I, I really wish I could just say, yes, everyone can buy lidocaine, no problem. And we'll show you exactly how to use it. That's not the answer, though. That's true. So what pe- what can people do, darling? Well, there are some other things <laughs> that you can do. Of course, the most popular anesthetic is a prescription item, as you say. So it may be difficult to obtain enough of it, if you're able to get any of it at all, to adequately fill the need of any long-term survival scenario. Well, then also, because it's a liquid, going back to our previous discussions several times on expiration dates, now you've got a liquid storage, and we have a case of it, right. and it's... I'd say that stuff is probably at least four years past expiration. Right. So it's decreasing in its effectiveness. And if it becomes cloudy, which so far it has right. not, we just can't use you it. You probably should use it. Just but can't you want to know something? At, at I'm all. going. What I think we should do uh-huh. is we should take one of those, open them up, and. You want me to stab should, you? you? I'll, I'll inject, get it right now. You can inject me. You want me to inject you right now? <laughs> we'll do it at some other time. <laughs> Come on, hon. Let's have an on air experience. But I definitely, I definitely want to do a, that. We'll, we will report then on it. Then I'll get a scalpel and I'll stick right. you. We will report. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, come on. We will definitely report on that in the very near future because that I would like. You're that not, you're is not important being fun. So I would like to know that. So anyhow. Everybody's out there. Please don't please don't stab Dr. Bones. <laughs> please don't hurt Dr. Bones. <laughs> or they might be going, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I would never hurt my husband. Uh-huh. All right. So anyhow, we mentioned in our podcast that we learn as much from our readers and listeners than they than they do from us, and that's actually true because we actually had a reader tell us about the use of Benadryl diphenhydramine. Yes, but as only a reasonable, injectable yes, version. As in a reasonable alternative for injectable local anesthesia. Right. Now, you're not going to find this information on drugs.com or other general medical information sites. As a matter of fact, you'll read that diphenhydramine uh, Benadryl is an antihistamine that reduces the effects of natural histamine in the body and mm-hmm. uses it to treat sneezing, uh, runny nose, itching, watery eyes, rashes, cold allergy symptoms, things like that. Can serve as a the, things like uh, drugs.com will say that it'll serve as a remedy for motion sickness. That it can be a, a sedative. Matter matter of fact, it's an ex. The pill itself is an excellent sedative at 50 milligrams. Well, that's what's in Tylenol PM. Yeah. And all the other PM medicine combinations, because they're all trying to make them. It, it's strictly Tylenol and Benadryl. That's all it is. And then they put it in a fancy package and 
try to hide the content so you don't realize all you're doing is buying Benadryl and Tylenol that's been put together. So that's all it is, but it's very sedating. Be careful. That's right. It is even used to treat certain aspects of Parkinson's disease. I don't know if you knew that, but that is something that they use it for. Injectable Benadryl. Yep. Well, that's interesting. So it's interesting that they do that. Injectable Benadryl has been used as a local anesthetic since 1956. Uh, it's been used in uh, dental procedures, podiatric, podiatric, mm-hmm. podiatric. I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> you think I know how to pronounce it at this age? Uh, and well, you're just not skin a, procedures. You're not a foot specialist. <laughs> podiatrist. Podiatrist. Podiatric. Well, Podi- podiatric. Podiatric. That um, might be it, actually. That, I think that sounds better than po- po- I have never actually had to say that yeah. word. Podiatric. Okay, podiatric <laughs> it is. So anyhow, the um, I have a, a comment from a pharmacist emergency medicine blog that I mm-hmm. was referred to, and I'm going to read what they say about it. Now that there are, ne- oh. I, I gave you the pros of what it can be used for, and I will tell you the drugs.com tells you not to use it injectable Benadryl is a local anesthetic because of the chance if you put too much of it in that there may be tissue death at the point of injection. So you just have to be careful with how much I'm going to give you the recipe for how much you should use. And and let me just say one more thing. This is also prescription. So yes. Although yeah, we, we tried to buy it. Actually we were successful. And then no, I, I was semi successful. I actually entered my payment and tried to buy it from a vet supply company. And darn it, if not two days later, did they write me and say, I'm sorry, this is a prescription only. Please forward your subscription or your order will be placed on hold. And then I'm sure they're just going to cancel it. Yeah, the funny thing. Because I didn't write back and go, oh, I was just trying to see if I could buy it. Right. The funny thing. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, the, not si- I'm not actually going to send you a prescription. The funny thing was they waited a couple of days to actually. It was. You know, so it was, was pretty two strange. days. Well, but anyhow, I guess let, they were going through their orders. But the question is, can it be used? And so here's from a pharmacist emergency medicine blog that uh, I read in, in detail. It says there that in one validation study for the use of Benadryl or um, diphenhydramine as a skin anesthetic, a a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study was conducted to assess the degree of anesthesia and the pain associated with injection in 24 patients who received 1% Benadryl, 2% Benadryl, 1% lidocaine, and just uh, sterile saline placebo. Subjects who received 1% Benadryl achieved an equivalent level of anesthesia relative to 1% lidocaine. See that equivalent level of anesthesia, the same amount of anesthesia you get with 1% lidocaine. 1% uh, Benadryl was actually more effective in this outcome compared to 2%. Go figure, huh? So obviously you shouldn't be using, you don't need to use too much of this stuff. There you go. That's right. Too much is bad. Right. And that's with a lot of things, by the way, folks. You know, if you, you take a vitamin... Taking three or four of those is not helping your situation. If you're supposed to drink, you know, a certain number of ounces of water every day and you triple that, that that's not good. Everything in moderation. Right. Absolutely. Now, I will say that yes. diphenhydramine, when it is injected, hurts more than lidocaine. It burns or it's definitely more uncomfortable to have an injection with Benadryl. Uh, liquid Benadryl or diphenhydramine than it is with 
lidocaine at the same concentration. So that's something that's important. Well, I can get some and do know. an experiment. And yeah, me, Ariel Moore, <laughs> she loves doing experiments. Like, on me. Oh, help me. Just terrific. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, they did another study that evaluated other concentrations of diphenhydramine, and uh, 0.5% was deemed similar in perception of pain compared to 1% lidocaine. So even the half dose of the amount that was used in the previous experiment seemed to have the same effect as 1% lidocaine. So even 0.5% diphenhydramine or Benadryl seems to work. So they think it's a viable alternative in terms of maintaining local anesthesia. It's uh, one of those things that seems to be uh, pretty useful. Now in places that are, have a lot of nerve endings, it, it may be less effective than lidocaine according to the study there. So they suggest not using it if you don't have to in the face area, uh, but otherwise in other comparisons of let's say 1% uh, Benadryl and 1% lidocaine, similar, similar levels and depths of local anesthesia were achieved. Now, I mentioned there are adverse effects, and that is, is true. Number one, it can hurt going in at injection, and the use of uh, diphenhydramine as local anesthetic may be associated with some tissue death at the site of infection. injection, usually occurring from the use of excessively high amounts of the medicine. As such, you're going to see it contraindicated as a local anesthetic on some medical websites, but indeed it does function to anesthetize you. So uh -huh. you need to know that it is effective for anesthesia and at normal doses. You even might get some sedation, so that may be good or that may be bad, mm -hmm. of course, but you know, it might be good to be a little sedated if you're going to have to have things done. Right. But, uh, you have to be aware that its safety has not been confirmed in the fingers, toes, ears, and nose, really distal areas that may have uh, limited uh, circulation going to it. Right. So that's something that's, that's important. Now here's the recipe. This is again from our pharmacist blog. And um, it goes like this. Draw up the entire contents of a vial containing 50 milligrams per milliliter of diphenhydramine into the syringe, and that should measure to just one milliliter. So usually these vials are just one milliliter vials. And you dilute the contents of that syringe with four milliliters of saline solution to get a final volume of five milliliters. So you're going to have to use not a one milliliter syringe. But a or at least a, a five, six, you know, a five, six, five a ten. Six. Ten's probably a yeah, good so one. That would, so that would be not an unreasonable thing. Of course, they recommend you clearly label the contents of the syringe with um, the words diphenhydramine 1%. That gives you 1%. By diluting 50 milligrams in 5 milliliters, you get 10 milligrams per milliliter. And that's 1% that's diphenhydramine. Now, usually the appropriate effect can be achieved with about two milliliters or so of the injected Benadryl, injectable Benadryl. I've seen people that use 10 milliliters. I think that's a lot. Yeah, I would sounds use, like a lot. I would use as, you know, two milliliters or so, just, just enough to get uh, anesthesia in the area you have to do things with. Absolutely. Now, again, I am going to say this one more time. We're not talking about the liquid Benadryl that you buy over the counter. We're not talking about you folks crushing up Benadryl pills and adding any kind of fluid to them whatsoever. This is strictly from a pharmacy 
It in is a vial, labeled, labeled as right, injectable, injectable Benadryl. Benadryl. It has a special container with a rubber lid on top, mm-hmm. probably with right. a plastic flip top that you take off. It is only injectable. And why? And why? Why do you want to only use that? Because number one, it's very difficult to get an appropriate uh, concentration. That to what you need to use, and also it's very difficult to achieve sterility of through anything this, else of this item. So that's just, and those are just two of the po- of the problems. Yeah, we can related. make a there, huge list of quite, them. Quite a few. So you, this is not a, a do-it-yourself, make my own injectable Benadryl. That's right. So what what I did is I put an article up about Benadryl as an injectable mm-hmm. anesthetic, local mm-hmm. anesthetic, and I put down three or four of these studies so you could take a look at them and see that indeed they, it does work, that indeed you uh, people indeed that need local anesthesia but are allergic to lidocaine indeed might be well served by using injectable Benadryl. Or like what I think we're all probably going to have to do is just suck it up. Yeah, <laughs> and it, over the course of time, that's true because you know, if you think about I it, hate to say it, if if a problem is occurs, if if a disaster, it takes you off the grid long enough, you're eventually going to use up all of your commercial medicines. Even if you have a bunch of liquid lidocaine or or, or injectable um, Benadryl, it's it's all eventually going to go bad. And so, what are we going to do unless somebody is when I say come bad, up with we a factory, less potent. Yes, come up with yeah. Bad, bad is never poison. Bad is just less effective. Although, unless we say it, some of these things can become contaminated. Right. If you're sticking a needle in and out of oh, yeah. an injectable be, vial, right? Multi-use vials. You've got to be super careful. Yes. Yes. Super there careful. You go. I mean, the bottom line is the survival medic's job is a truly difficult one, and you got to search for any additional tool in the medical woodshed. It's not easy, but it's necessary if you're going to be effective in any austere setting. Well, I have a, a future off-grid business for people, and there'll be a lot of them. Uh-huh. But one of them's going to be... Um, Grave digger, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, maybe. But no, I was thinking of an ether or a chloroform yes, facility. Some, right. Because well, they had a lot of those in this. If they can do it in the Civil War... right. There's a formula. We can do it now, yeah. and I don't mean now. I yeah. mean if there's some horrible thing that well, happens. Well, the formula folks. for that is, involves a combination of bleach and acetone, and the problem with it is that it had a great deal of uh, burning that occurred on the face, you know, when it was applied to the face. So they actually, in the Civil War, had these various yes. ways that would make sure that the rag with chloroform was in it not wasn't touching, touching the, skin. the skin. Right. It had. Um, I don't even know how to describe it. Almost like a a raised face mask, something that if anyone's had anesthesia, you know, they put that oxygen mask over your face. Uh, think of that, but in a metal form, mm-hmm. that kind of shape. Uh, and then on the top of that, on the outside, was something you could open up. Mm-hmm. Maybe it had a, a little holder with holes underneath it where you could put a little piece of cloth. Mm-hmm. With right. the anesthesia and yes. set the cloth in there. Exactly, yeah. So that you gave small amount of doses. Yeah, it's a very cool, uh, I mean, you see this Those in, things in a are number really of places, neat. but where we saw it was at the Museum of Civil War Medicine in Frederick, Maryland. But we also saw one next to Antietam. Yes, 
And what was the name of that museum? It was also a Civil War medicine museum, but I don't remember the actual name of it. It was the... It's near the battlefield. It was where uh, General McClellan, the Union commander, stayed during the battle. Yes. They, and the woman who was running that was so nice. We started talking to her and telling her how we were interested in these old medical items and what they had done back then. And she went up to the storage and brought down a couple of these for us to see. Yeah, it was really cool. <laughs> that was so neat, yeah. I have pictures somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where. Although I will say I lost all of everything 2015. So if it was in 2015, I, I have, it's gone. I have plenty of pictures from 2015 on my computer. Oh, do you? I'm sure Oh, I, do. I need to go through your computer because mine are gone. Well, you know what? We talked about a couple of pretty specific things. Uh-huh. Tooth abscesses, using Benadryl as, instead of lidocaine for, for wound closure or, or other local anesthetic reasons. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about something basic. and Let's talk about germs that cause disease. You know, the medic is going to have to deal with infections from dirty wounds, bad water, infectious diseases. So let's talk about some basic aspects of infection. What is an infection? An infection is designed as the invasion of the body by microscopic organisms. Remember, I used the word invasion when I talked about that. That's right. Right. Uh, A pathogen is any agent that can cause the disease. So bacteria is a pathogen, viruses are pathogens, pathogens, fungus could be pathogens, parasites can be pathogens. So pathogens cause injury to tissues because they produce these toxin, toxic substances mm-hmm. that cause damage in various ways. Now, not every microbe, however, is a pathogen. Matter of fact, some are actually beneficial. Some are even necessary for human life, such as much of your intestinal bacteria. Yes. If you didn't have that, you would have a very hard time digesting your food. Now, pathogens are often carried by what we call vectors. And that comes from the Latin word vectus, which is one who carries these are animals or humans or other microbes even that carry and transmit a pathogen to other organisms. A vector doesn't have to be ill itself to carry a disease. A mosquito, for example, carries the organism that causes malaria in humans, but it never gets sick. It doesn't experience the disease. Typhoid Mary is another example. Uh, This is a woman from the turn of the century uh, not the 20th century, you know, 21st century, the 20th. I have to tell you, she sounds like somebody I probably wouldn't want wouldn't to be want friends with. Wouldn't want to be friends with. Well, no, you really I, wouldn't I want her. I don't think I'd go to lunch with her. Well, you really wouldn't <laughs> want her as your nanny or any of your domestic, but she, that's exactly what she was. She was a domestic servant at, who carried typhoid, and cook, who carried typhoid fever to so many other people uh. that she killed probably a dozen people at, without ever feeling sick herself. And they actually, she had, we so changed her name. Now they find her out, they change, she changed her name and go somewhere else and then get found out again after somebody died. The, uh, so you have to eliminate this kind of vector from the environment. In other words, you have to hand marry her pink slip or you have to get rid of the microbe from the environment to end things like epidemics. Right. Now, there are a number of different pathogens, but bacteria is one of them. Probably the one we hear most about is bacteria, and I mentioned that. A single bacteria is a bacterium. Bacteria were among the first life forms on Earth. They're present everywhere, from the soil to the bottom of the ocean to inside your body. And they probably even exist on Mars. I don't know that for sure, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me in the least. If you took the entire population of bacteria on planet Earth, 
they would have a mass that would exceed the entire plant and animal population combined. That is insane. So imagine that. One little bacterium, but if you take all the bacterium bacteria in on the earth, they you know more than all the elephants, all the lions, all the humans, <laughs> all the whales and all and all the trees combine all that together and it's there's the bacteria still outnumber us. Still, still heavier and outnumber us with their mass. It's pretty amazing. Well, you know what? Maybe they're the one who's causing climate change. Yeah. If somebody wants to blame something for climate change. Blame, blame bacteria. Them. Sure. They I blame them officially. That's right. Well, <laughs> them and the farting cows. We'll have to find yes, <laughs> farting cows. We have to, have to find the lawyer for the farting cows and the bacteria so we can sue them. <laughs> All right, bacteria have a number of shapes. They range from being spheres to rods, looking like cylinders, basically, uh, to spirals. And so when bacteria reach a certain size, they reproduce by splitting in two, a process called binary fission. You probably saw that in your science classes in uh, junior high. Uh, mo most bacteria are good guys, as I mentioned. You wouldn't be able to digest food without them, as I said. Some, however, will cause very serious infectious diseases, some of them that you might know are cholera, syphilis, anthrax, leprosy, bubonic plague. Wow. The most common fatal bacterial diseases will affect the lungs mostly. Tuberculosis, for example, kills about 2 million people a year, even now, mostly in underdeveloped countries. Uh, although many bacteria have become resistant to antibiotics, most of them still can be killed with antibiotics. You might have to look around and try different ones until you find the one that works but antibiotics still work for most bacteria uh, there are many different types and they don't need to enter the host cells to reproduce now that's a difference but one of the differences between bacteria and viruses viruses do need to do that uh, they uh, bacteria do find for example just floating around in your blood now a subgroup of bacteria called rickettsia there's a sort of in-between bacteria virus called rickettsia that depends on entering a human cell, a host cell, growing there and then reproducing. So it's not a virus, it is a bacteria, but it, it works slightly differently. Rickettsia type bacteria cause Rocky Mountain spotted fever. They call typhi cause typhus, a number of other infectious disease. You might be surprised to know they don't cause rickets though. Rickettsia don't cause rickets. That's a deformity of long bones in young children, which is caused by a vitamin D deficiency, something you don't see very often in developed countries these days. Uh, many. Well, actually, I'm going to correct you just a little bit there. Okay. There are problems with vitamin D levels now. Uh, yes. Oh yes, we ta you talked about that on it's a actually show. Actually, is pretty bad. Yes, but you, but you, you know, need you need to go out in the, the sun. Yes. Very few people do that. And that's the problem. And not only anymore. that, but we were so threatened by the dangers of sun and cancer ah, mm -hmm. that everyone just stopped going out. Yeah. Some people do, but now it's, you got to cover yourself with sunscreen and you have umbrellas and we're all paranoid about the sun, that the sun's tr just trying to kill us. All right. Now, to get enough vitamin D, you don't have to be all long. day in the exactly. sun. Exactly. So, go outside. Walk around for 10 to 15 minutes, not naked, 
unless you own your all your property for miles, <laughs> miles around. <laughs> Although I would I would be a little paranoid about hovercrafts, yeah. <laughs> drones coming drones over. Drones these days, yeah. But you don't have to be naked. Uh, you know, just some arms. If you have shorts, that would be good too. But get a little sun. We, and you know what? I feel better when we go outside and we start looking around at our coffee beans that are growing and our little baby avocados oh, yeah. that are growing. We check those out. Yeah, we got out. a lot of cool stuff growing. We have Arabica coffee that's growing. Yeah, the we coffee have... is not red yet, but no. there there's a beans bunch of green beans. They're so cute. And the little baby avocados, one of them is actually about, I think, three inches now. Yep. So cute, but we, of course, we were watching it since they were blossoms or blooms. Yeah. It takes a while. What to else? Get there. We walk around, we say, Oh, our apples. Oh, we yeah. go and check out our apples. Right. We have golden Dorset apples. Mm-hmm. Probably they, they managed to live down here and uh, we may have the southernmost apple tree. I, and our cotton. We've been looking at our cotton recently. Yes, we have cotton growing also. Waiting for the cotton to so I, a I lot guess of it does a bloom things. before yeah. it makes yes. the Yes. So there's no there's no cotton flowers yet. But uh, we're getting Everything there. looks good. The we're clove, our two surviving clove trees, trees are doing fine. Are doing fine. We've got citrus trees are are. Doing yeah, they're doing thing. really well. I'm so happy. Now wait a minute. Here I'm talking. I'm talking about. You're talking about the garden. Go outside. I'm talking about pathogens. Well, I'm encouraging people to go outside and look at the wilderness and listen to the birds and look at the sky and get your vitamin D. All right, well, let me talk a little bit about viruses. Viruses (laughs) are microscopic infectious agents that can reproduce only inside the living cells of other organisms. Indeed, when they're outside of it, the viruses are called, actually, they're called viral particles or virions. And they only act as a living organism when they enter a host cell. So they actually actually stretch the definition of of life. life. That's right. right. Now, viruses can infect whether they're alive or not. They can infect all types of life forms, from animals and plants all the way down to bacteria. And examine, uh, examples of common human diseases caused by viruses include the common cold, influenza, chickenpox, rabies, herpes, hepatitis. Wow, just tons of it. And, and don't forget AIDS. Don't forget Ebola, Zika, um, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. There's so many, and they're all caused by viruses. They can be spread well, we'll by... we'll call it HIV. HIV. That's right. Uh, They can be spread by mosquitoes and other vectors. They can be spread by airborne droplets, contact with blood or other bodily fluids. They can be uh, ingested if you ingested contaminated food and water. There are all sorts of different ways that you can get a viral infection. And what they do is they provoke an immune response in your body. It usually kills the infecting virus, but immune responses to viruses can also be produced by vaccines. They confer an immunity to the special viral, specific viral infection. Some viruses do evade these immune responses, even vaccines, and result in chronic infections, such as HIV, hepatitis C. There are antiviral drugs, but antibiotics would not have an effect against a virus. And that's important because a lot of people ask their doctor for an antibiotic when they have a cold. If the cold is a virus, you are not going to get better with an antibiotic. Uh, protozoa, they are, uh, uh, that's another type of pathogen. It's a one-cell microbe that's a little more advanced, has animal-like behavior, such as the ability to move. They actually have a little tail called a flagella that allows them to whip it around and move in a moist or aquatic environment. Pretty much they're restricted to those environments. And transmission of these kinds of 
infections you mostly by drinking, using contaminated water, but some are also transmitted by animal vectors. Uh, protozoa cause infectious diseases in humans like malaria, um, giardia, dysentery, uh, sleeping sickness, and amoebiasis. So these are some and trichomonas protozoal diseases. Yuck. Trichomonas is a vaginal infection that can be caused by a, a, a parasite. Uh, and protozoa are mostly susceptible to treatment with specific antibiotics. One that is very useful to have in your storage is metronidazole, also known as fishzole. And the last thing is uh, I'm going to talk about is virus. Uh, uh, is fungus. Fungus uh, is and organisms like a yeast or a mold. Uh, fungal infections mostly affect skin and mucous membranes like the oral cavity, maybe the vagina, but they can go into your lungs if you have a weakened immune system and can kill you. They are treated with antifungal medications and they can be used as ointments or sometimes in oral form. Now this is all the time I think that we have for today. Boy, oh boy. Yeah, we talked about quite, quite a bit. <clears throat> I hope that you enjoyed today's show and we'll listen to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton every week, same time, same station. <laughs> That's right. We'll be right back. We won't be right back. We'll, we'll be back next it. week. Yes, <laughs> week. All right. Bye bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Doctor Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. <laughs>